Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg's executive producer, Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny talks with Todd White, founder and CEO of Dry Farm Wines, about setting standards for wine that doesn't exactly fit the industry mold. With Dry Farm Wines that are organic, additive-free, and irrigation-free, White believes that people would desire the same standards from their favorite wine producers if wine bottles had transparent nutrition content labels. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Today, I get to talk to Todd White, the founder and CEO of Dry Farm Wines. Todd, so thrilled to have you. I'm a big fan of, of your, your beverages. You've been very generous to Food Tank in the past. So thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Excited to be here. Lots to talk about the dirty, dark secrets of the wine business. I know, right? Um, so my first question, I ask the same first question to everyone, is what is your favorite food memory? Or maybe you want to share your favorite wine memory with me instead. Oh, wow. My favorite wine memory sort of launched Dry Farm Wines, and it was a Pinot Noir from Germany that I enjoyed at Zuni Cafe in San Francisco, which nice. is nice. Yeah kind of an institution in San Francisco. It's been open almost 40 years. But uh, anyway, I had this particular bottle of wine. Coincidentally, the, the producer, the wine ever since this one vintage, we've, we've never bought it again. Um, it hasn't, uh, we haven't liked it since, but the particular vintage from 2012 or 13 was extraordinary. It changed my life. That was my favorite wine memory. But... Um, for food, I am such a food lover that it would just be hard to, <laughs> it would be hard to maybe, um, you know, I one time had these soft scrambled eggs on toast with white truffles in Paris about 30 years ago that kind of changed my life. Fancy. But anyway. That's nice. That's nice. So what yeah. was it about that, that particular vintage of wine that changed your outlook on, on, on wine and your life? Well, so I have like four particular grapes that I'm a big fan of, and Pinot Noir is number four. And it's often thought that the best Pinot Noirs are grown in Burgundy in, in France. And to me, and for my palate, I think the very best Pinot Noir in the world is grown in Germany. Mm. And um, the Germans, natural Pinot Noir, the way the Germans make it is just much lighter and more elegant and more ethereal, more sheer than what the French make. Okay. And so um, I just really love it. And I'd never tasted anything like it before. And, you know, when I first discovered natural wines, and that's a confusing term to many people because they think, well, aren't all wines natural? And in fact, they're not. And most wines are not natural. Most wines contain additives and mm-hmm. adjustments. And yeah. and uh, so they're, they're, they're not actually Natural wines are a, cat- or a very specific category of wine. But anyway, I had just discovered natural wines, and as a result of that, had never, other than Riesling, I never drank a German wine before. And I discovered the Pinot Noirs in Germany and kind of swept me away and kind of part of what catapulted me into into dry farm wines. So interesting. So you've spent your career doing a lot of different things. Um, and, and one of the things you've sort of done for yourself 
is you you describe yourself as a biohacker. So how does a biohacker, and you can tell our listeners what that, that means to you, but how does a biohacker get into the wine business? Well, I, let me define biohacking yeah. first because, I, I, because it's a term that many people don't know or understand. So the way I... The way I define biohacking is it's the art and science of how we shape our behavior to influence our biological and neurological outcome. Now, what does that mean? Yeah. That means the art and science of our behavior because many biohacks, like much of nutrition, many biohacks don't actually have definitive science to prove that they work. Right? And so that's part of the art. And part of the science is that many biohacks do have definitive proof. I'll give you some examples of biohacks. So the most common one is a diet. Like I'm on a ketogenic diet. Some people are on paleo. Some people are low-carb or sugar-free. That's a biohack because our behavior is influencing, positively influencing, our neurological and biological outcome. Meditation is a biohack. Mm-hmm. We know there's very solid science to show that Meditation has definitive neurological benefits, right? So those are, those are the most common types of biohacking. Sure. But then biohacking can also go into nootropics and brain foods and supplements and electromagnetic you know, fields and electric stimulation to the brain and so on and so forth. There are many types of biohacks, but the common ones are like diet or meditation or anything that we do to influence the biological and neurological outcome. So I've been practicing various biohacking regimens since, I don't know, for 20 or 30, uh-huh. 30 years probably, uh-huh. starting with the Atkins diet, which was really the original ketogenic diet, and before it was known as ketogenic. And so now keto is like super, super buzzy and popular. It's the number one search diet term on Google today. But five years ago, no one had really heard of it other than biohackers. And so that, that's, I've just experimented with how to optimize the life experience. And so you asked me, how, what does that have to do with wine? Yeah. Well, so I did the same thing with wine as I discovered, you know, I, I've been a lifelong wine aficionado, a wine lover, I've been drinking wine since I was nine years old. And I got to... Wow, what a fun family. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if they were so supportive of it, but... but uh, but the, uh, I, had, uh, I was having problems drinking traditional conventional wines. And I quit drinking for a while in a time I described as suffering through sobriety and didn't really dig that. So I, I, it was a, just a bumbling series of accidents. But sure. I, I stumbled upon, five years ago, I stumbled upon the natural wine revolution, which really had not yet come to the United States. It was primarily happening in central France. And so if it's helpful, I can define what natural wine means. But so then I stumbled upon natural wines and also that were lower in alcohol. And I discovered that I felt so much better Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. from drinking these wines because they didn't contain any additives and they were lower in alcohol and sugar-free. Can you talk about some of those additives that are in, you know, non-natural wine that make, you know, not make just you feel a little bit off, but other people feel off too? Is it the sulfates? Well, it's a pretty universal. People think 
that how they feel from drinking wine is just how they feel, but that's not true. I mean, when you drink a natural wine, you'll see a huge difference, a huge difference in how you feel. But the additives, there are 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in wine. Wow. And there are none of those in the labels, right? Well, there are no contents labeling on wine. So when you buy a bottle of wine, you don't really know what's in it. And so, um, you know, four of them are four of the additives. Look, some of the additives are quite natural. Uh-huh. Um, and then some of them are not. So four of them are quite toxic. And one of them is highly poisonous. Which one is? Which, which... Dimethyl dicarbonate, also known as sold under the brand name Valcarin. Oh. And it's applied to tens of, th- tens of millions of gallons of California wine every year. And why is it um, used? It's used to choose for a number of things, but the primary use is to successfully treat the single most common bacterial fault in wines known as Brettomyces. And so if you have Brett in your wine, it is a technical fault and causes the wine to taste quite abnormal. Okay. And most people don't like the taste of Brettomyces, although some people do like it. But it's considered a technical fault. And this chemical, this dimethyl dicarbonate, which you can search online if you do a Wikipedia search for it, you will find that its primary hazard is that it's toxic. Yeah. And so, but anyway, it's it's applied to wine to treat, to primarily to treat Brettomyces and and it's it's commonly used. It's highly toxic. Now the manufacturer claims that it hydrolyzes into methanol, and that may in fact be largely true. Our problem with it is a we don't like drinking methanol, which is four times more toxic than, than ethanol. Absolutely. Right. And so and so I'm not really into methanol either. But if you choose to drink bicarbonate. Uh, the dimethyl dicarbonate, if you choose to drink it, here's my here's my problem with it. Since there's no labeling on a wine bottle, and that's because the wine industry has successfully spent millions of dollars in lobby mm. money to keep contents labeling off of wine because they don't want you to know what's in it. And so most wine in the United States is made in massive factories in Central California. Right. Here's the other interesting thing to note. What's happened in the wine industry is exactly the same thing that's happened in our food supply. So there's been massive corporate consolidation. So the top three wine companies in the United States make 52% of all the wine. And the top, the top 30 companies make over 70% of U.S. wine. So when you go into the grocery store, into a wine store, you see all these bottles. Yeah. Most of that is made by a handful of companies. So it's an illusion. And you don't know that right. because they hide behind thousands of brands and labels. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so th- so what's happening is that those wines, which they want you to believe, wine is sold through, is sold through story. So they want you to believe that you're drinking from a farmhouse or a chateau. That's what you see on the label. Right? But in fact, you're drinking from massive massive corporate factories Absolutely. that are located in central Cal- central California. Yeah. That's what's really happening in the wine business and and 
they don't want you to know that. I've told a few million people about it. Now. <laughs> well, and, and let's podcast. And, yeah, let's get into how you've disrupted. You know, your part of the wine industry, at least. And and can you talk about some of the methods that dry farms uh, vineyards are using that are different from some of these big commercial growers that you've been talking about? Right. So the primary difference is in natural wine, and we're the largest buyer and seller of natural wines in the world. There are no wines made in the United States that fit our standards of purity and health. And our standards, dry farm wine standards and certification, is higher than just being natural. So in our case, they must be dry farmed. And less than 1% of U.S. wines are dry farmed these days. Mm -hmm. It's all irrigated. Mm -hmm. And you irrigate for greed and money. It has nothing to do with grape growing. It's cheaper to irrigate, and farming's cheaper, and, uh, and the yield is higher, and the fruit weighs more, because when you fill fruit with water, it weighs more fruit is sold by the time. Yeah, yeah. So that's why you irrigate. So they're irrigation-free. They are also farmed organically or biodynamically. Mm-hmm. Biodynamic is a prescriptive form of organic farming. So they are farmed completely organically and chemically free, and they are also... Natural wines are fermented with wild native yeast that's found present on the skin of all wine grapes in the world. Commercial wines are fermented with genetically modified lab-grown commercial yeast. And the reason they do that is because the wild native yeast is temperamental and difficult to work with. It also will not withstand a high alcohol environment. Alcohol will kill a native yeast. American wines and wines around the world are quite high in alcohol these days. Well, can you go back to to that point you made earlier about how your wines are lower in alcohol and why that's important? Well, alcohol, and this surprises people to hear this from the wine guy, but alcohol is a dangerous neurotoxin. And so we believe that you should drink in moderation. There There are known benefits to drinking in moderation, but you know, most people don't have a glass of wine. They have several. Uh-huh. And so we believe that you should drink. It also tastes better and is friendlier with food. So another standard that we have that isn't a standard to the natural wine world is that we don't drink or sell any wines over 12.5%. Got it. And the, most of the wines I drink personally are between 95 and 11% alcohol because I like the taste of them. Uh-huh. And they're also... They're also friendlier with food. You can drink more of it without having the negative remnants and impact of Mm -hmm. excessive alcohol. Mm -hmm. So you say 11% versus 15%, which is about the average in U.S. wines today are almost 15%. Uh, Is 11 or 15% that really make that big of a difference? It's about 40% difference. So it's a huge difference in how you feel and also a big difference in how it tastes. Alcohol is not food friendly, right? And so when you think about wine and food pairings, they're much more elegant with lower alcohol because it just tastes better with food because the rest of everything else is water, right? There are only three things in wine. You know, there's the polyphenol flavonoids and, and anaflavonoids and the, the, the compounds that are health-friendly to, to drinking wine. Uh, then there's water and then there's ethyl alcohol. Those are the only three things that should be in a natural wine, uh-huh. right? Not in a commercial wine. You're going to have other additives and chemicals and 
um, and manipulations, and you're going to have a very often wood, you know, oak additives, and to give it this oakiness, or you know, this thing that the wine industry has made popular among particularly sure. American wine drinkers. But sure. it's not it's not exclusive to America. I mean, it's it's all over the world. Yeah, these kind of these kind of extracted, very oaky. Yeah, wines that cause people to feel bad. Right, and and that's one of the other practices you 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 do. You you use a like minimal use of of oak, right? When you're when you're there's no there's there's no new oak in our wines. That's good. So, which we also think there are problems associated with that, both based on how you feel and also the health health issues associated with it. But there's no we don't use any new oak. So all of our family farms. If they use oak at all, it's what's known as neutral oak. So it's been after about six or seven vintages of with new oak, it will become neutral, meaning it no longer imparts any flavor or any compounds from the wood. Got it. But and you talk about a, a little bit about some of the other things you do, like little filtering, no adding uh, sugar. Um, no adding, you know, other chemicals or aromas or colors. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why well, commercial that's wines are, There's a whole bunch of things that are going on in commercial wine, including sterile filtering, uh-huh. uh, including sterilization using um, sulfur dioxide. Right. Almost every single wine gets that. Uh, sterile filtering is quite common. Um, then also color agents, the, the, uh, the most popular is called Mega Purple. It causes red wines to be darker because there's a myth among consumers, particularly in the United States, that the darker a red wine is, the higher quality it is. Huh. Well, there's no truth to that at all. In fact, I would submit to you that it's just the opposite. Interesting. But, wow. But so, so there's an additive uh, called Mega Purple that's poured into the tank to make the wine darker. And uh, I don't know if you've seen, you won't get this from natural wines, but I don't know if you've seen where people get purple teeth or purple lips from uh-huh, drinking uh-huh. red wine. That's usually from a color agent because real wine doesn't won't discolor you like that. Oh, wow. That's a good party fact, isn't it? That's great. That's really interesting. Um, so you, I, I want to get into, you know, you talked about this idea of the commercial wine industry. There's a lot of greed going on there. And I know one of the things that you and, and your company are trying to do is, is change some of the policy regarding commercial wine. W- what are those efforts? What do they look like? Well, we've not been, we've not been, we would love to see labeling. We would love to see contents and nutritional labeling on a wine bottle. We believe that consumers should know what they're drinking. Yeah. And if you choose to drink dimethyl bicarbonate, I'd celebrate that. I'm not here to stop you from drinking it. I think you should know whether you're drinking it or not. Right. And so that's, I, I, I think that every, like in food packaging, uh, to the extent, and I rarely buy anything that comes in a package as such mm-hmm. that has ingredients on it, but it, when I do, you know, if it's a condiment or something, I want to know what's in it, mm-hmm. right? And so I want to know how much sugar's in it. I want to know, you know, I want to know what was used to make it. Transparency, so, yeah. Transparency, and our customers want that. Our customers are people who care about what they put in their body. And so, 
And so we believe we, we don't have any active efforts at the moment. We're not actively pursuing legislation. We don't have the power to. We'd be facing, you know, we would be facing the lobby arm of the sure, wine industry, sure. which is very powerful and has successfully been able to maintain a lack of transparency through the spending of lobby money. It's not like that no one has thought about putting a content label sure. on wine before. Sure. That, that, that's been attempted. It's just been that the industry's been successful in colluding with the government in Washington, D.C. to keep content label off of wine because they want you to believe that it's a bottle of fermented grape juice. That's not true. And if, if that's all it is, why would they care if there's a label on it? Absolutely. Right? Such a great point. And you talked about, you know, your consumers and how they want that transparency. But I can imagine some people maybe listening to you right now who are thinking, gosh, this wine must cost a lot. Can you talk about, you know, sort of the economics of, of the wine well, industry? Well, the economics are that for a handcrafted fine wine product, it's actually quite inexpensive. Uh-huh. And the reason for that is that, see, Americans buy brand. And brand is created through massive advertising and, and distribution. So Americans buy brands that they know, labels that they like. Natural wine cannot be produced in very large volumes and so without the use of additives and chemicals to keep it stable. So natural winemakers actually don't produce a lot of volume, and, which is why we work mm-hmm. with over 700 family farms. Wow. Right? We have to work with so many of them because... Uh, because none of them produce any meaningful quantity. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So actually, our wines sell all for the same price. They're $25 a bottle. And, and nice. that includes shipping. Yeah, right? that's very and reasonable so, for most folks. Right, if, you, if you go into the grocery store and you look at you know, your bigger wine brands like Behringer or you know, Mondavi and at, at the estate level, at the handcrafted level, and they're going to be you know, they're going to be 30 or $35. So our wines are quite affordable. Yeah. Um, and, and that $25 also includes shipping, which shipping wine is quite expensive because it's heavy. Absolutely. Right. Uh, you know, you mentioned these 700 family farms uh, that you're working with. That's uh, more than I thought. Uh, uh, and that's, uh, you know, takes a lot of work to have that interaction. Can you talk about your relationship with the farmers? Well, so we so we have a team. Um, we have a team. We have an office in Paris, and we have a team that that we have a team of four people that are in Europe right now. So um, you know that basically um, go to either they have a combination of activities. They go to natural wine fairs. There are about fifty around the world, and a fair is where natural wine growers all come under one roof, uh-huh. not all, but they'll be typically at a typical fair, there'll be 150 or 200 growers um, that come to the fair. They have to submit qualifications to get in the fair. They all know each other anyway. I mean, everybody is connected. There are about a thousand natural wine growers in the world. Most of them are in Europe. Uh-huh. We work with four growers. There are four natural wine growers in South Africa. And there are four in Chile. The rest of them spread across Europe. There are about 20 in the United States, but none of them make wine to our standards. Wow. Wow. And so our standards are a, a, a bar above just being natural. Remember, we don't sell higher alcohol. Almost all of the wines produced in the United States that are natural 
are higher in alcohol than meet our criteria. Almost all of them are irrigated as well, which doesn't meet our criteria. Uh, now they are added to free, and they ha they have they are technically natural wines. It just don't meet our criteria. So natural wine growing being irrigation free isn't a criteria of natural wine making. It is a criteria of dry farm wines. And there's a whole reason we could spend 15 minutes about why <laughs> irrigation is bad for yeah. the planet. Yeah, it's bad for the vine, and it's bad for your health. Absolutely. It lowers polyphenols in the wine. We could we could go down that rabbit well, hole. What, but, why don't you but, talk about polyphenols in wine? I, you know, people hear these terms or they see them in a magazine and they're like, oh, I should drink wine because, uh, you know, of X, Y, Z. Can you talk about the role of polyphenols in health? Well, polyphenols and flavonoids and antiflavonoids are present in both red and white wine. The most famous polyphenol is known as resveratrol, which has been shown in lab mice uh, to extend lifespan. There's never been any proof that it works in humans. Uh, and the concentrated level of resveratrol that the mice were administered was quite high. Uh -huh. But that's the most famous polyphenol. The difference uh, between red wine and white wine, and the reason that red wine is usually recommended for health reasons is because there are over 800 polyphenols and flavonoids and antiflavonoids in red wine. There are over, just over 200 in white wine. And the difference is that the increase in the polyphenols and other compounds that positively impact health are found in red wine is because they come from contact with the seeds and the skin. Mm, mm -hmm. So white wines don't see any skin contact in fermentation. White wines are made from free-run juice that's pressed from the grape. Red wine gets its color from contact with the skin. Mm -hmm. So if you squeeze the juice of a red wine grape and the juice of a white wine grape, they're both clear. And then after the pressing, then the skins are moved over, actually shoveled over into the tank with the, with the grape juice in it which is clear, largely clear. And then the, the maceration or contact with the skin is what gives red wine its color. It's also where red wine gets its increase in the polyphenols and other positive compounds come from contact with the skin and the seeds. And so, you know, you mentioned irrigation and that will lower the amount of polyphenols in, in your wine. Why is that? Well, there are two reasons for it. So one... The roots do not reach um, minerality in the levels of so a root on an irrigated the root on an there's studies to show this is not my opinion sure. there's scientific studies that that measure this that have measured the polyphenol in in unirrigated versus irrigated grapes there are two reasons for it so one. The root structure on an irrigated grapevine is about three feet in diameter and about three feet deep because it gets all of its water and nutrients from a little tube, a hose that's just above the trunk of the vine. Uh -huh. An unirrigated grapevine can have a root structure that can span 40 to 50 feet deep wow. as it struggles for to find nutrient uh -huh. and it struggles to find water in these capillary little tiny little capillary-like roots uh -huh. that are actually moving and breaking apart 
stone and soil to to extract moisture from it. Okay. It's also it's also that deeper root structure creates a higher polyphenol as the roots are digging and experiencing more of the earth and more of minerals and things that are in the and the second reason is when you fill it might not surprise you when you fill a grape berry with water as you do when you irrigate because one of the things you're trying to create is a heavier fruit because it'll sell for more right when you when you dilute uh, the juice within the grape, when you dilute the grape, you also dilute its health benefits or the corresponding sure, polyphenols. Sure. So interesting. Uh, before we move to our last question, I want to make sure our listeners know where to get more information. It's dryfarmwines.com. Any other resources you want to give out, Todd, before we, we move to this last question? Well, I mean, if they're interested in, in, in the natural wine movement, our, you know, the and learning more about natural wine, then I would, um, I would refer them also to rawwine.com. And raw wine is the primary natural wine fair in the world. And there's also a lot of ancillary information on their site about natural wines. So helpful. And, so, uh, And then also, if they're, if they're also one other resource that's very helpful that we use around the world, if they're interested in finding natural wines, they don't have to buy them from us. But if they live in a major market like New York or Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, you know, if they live in a major market, Denver, um, they can find natural wine restaurants, bars, and retailers, depending upon where they live as to how many they might find. But they can do a Google search for natural wine in their area. Or there's a smartphone app called Raisin. Nice. Uh, that that is the most comprehensive list of natural wine sources in the world. Very cool. And it's cool. a map-based, yeah, it's a map-based kind of app. So wherever you are, you can just dial it up and you can find access to natural wines. If you want dry farm wine certification, all of our standards, which are above and beyond natural, then the only place to get those wines would be from us. Awesome. And again, that's dryfarmwines.com rawwine.com and the name yes. of the app is Raisin. Right, that's correct. Awesome. All right, so I ask everyone the same first question, Todd, and everyone the same set of, of last questions and these are kind of rapid fire. Just say the first thing that comes to mind, okay? Sure. All right, the first is your favorite book. Uh, the Power of Now nice. by Cartola. Good one, good one. Uh, person who inspires you the most? Um, person who inspires me the most, uh, Mark Sisson. Describe to our listeners who that is. I think he's probably the most reputable published health leader in the United States. He's the sort of the father of the paleo movement. He's now a leader in the keto movement as well, but, um, he probably, in my opinion, he publishes the most accurate. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation in the nutritional world. And he publishes the, in my opinion, the the, the most validated, cited uh, nutritional recommendations and of anybody out there. And he has a blog called Mark's da- Daily Apple. And so he's also a friend of mine. He endorses Dry Farm Wines. I've known him for several years, and he's just uh, he's just uh, somebody who inspires me. 
There are not Got many it. people who inspire me. <laughs> Got it. All right. And our final question is, what makes you most excited about your work every day? Uh, the beginning of every day, our, our entire staff meets in a meditation room, and we spend the first hour of every day meditating together. That's the thing that most excites me about going to work. Very cool. I love how you mix uh, sort of the personal and the professional and make them one. That's awesome. Todd, such a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate your time as well. It's a lot of of fun. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system. 